0: I've got news for all of us threat modeling people. Threat modeling is more significant than the world of technology. Living within the walls of vast tech empires makes us think everything looks like a tech empire. Part of this journey is to experience threat modeling outside the box of tech. Dr. Michael Lodenthal does some tech-focused threat modeling, which isn't why I contacted him. He also creates threat models that consider the threats against the lives of very important people. My name is
1: Dr. Michael Lodenthal, and I'm based as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Cincinnati in the School of Public and International Affairs in the Center for Cyber Strategy and Policy. I have a bachelor's degree in international peace and conflict resolution and gender studies from American University. I completed a master's degree in terrorism studies at the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St. Andrews, and a PhD in Conflict Analysis from what then was called the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University just outside Washington. I'm a Philadelphia native and now reside in the Midwest. I should say, to give an important shout out to my employer, I work with the Center for Cyber Strategy and Policy at the University of Cincinnati. Our niche area is that we are social scientists who inform technical computing, and cyber-related areas. That's explicitly our job. Our job is to use social science research methods and the expertise of social sciences to apply to non-social science technical matters, be that privacy law, be that threat modeling of supply chains, et cetera. That is the area in which we're trying to grow how social scientists can help. Because social scientists can help to determine industry-wide best practices through reviewing and interrogating secondary literature and then using these ideas of structured
0: analytic techniques. To start, we must understand how Dr. Lodenthal got to threat modeling. This will help to gain perspective on his threat models and why he approaches them the way he does. He has a unique history of applying threat modeling outside normal roads. Going back to the late
1: 1990s, I was involved in social movement organizing both on a research side and an activism organizing side. And one of the things that became apparent to me in doing all sorts of social movement work, starting with reproductive justice work, is that these groups exist in a universe which is wildly unsafe, which presents a universe of threats, dangers, and insecurities. I was exposed to computers early. I remember being 12 or 13 and playing with Red Hat Linux and using things which at the time like weren't super common, at least amongst my community. I began to occupy this weird space as a social movement organizer who's also interested in technology. And as that progressed, I found myself helping social movement organizations assess their security and figure out what sort of vulnerabilities they had. As I tried to figure out how to do that better, I ran into technical software-based threat modeling, and I was able to understand the logic of it because I had a bit of a technical background. Fast forward a few years, and now I'm working mostly abroad in conflict zones and with international NGOs, groups like Doctors Without Borders. I've never worked with them, but groups like that, and helping international NGOs figure out where are their risks and dangers and threats, and maybe more importantly, is where are their blind spots? As I've moved into more of a digitally based job, I've consumed this material incessantly over the past five years. And have begun to hone and professionalize and formalize the work that I'm doing, moving from something I did on the side for activist groups I know to more formal methodology that we've now applied to a number of very large organizations that had security
0: needs. Threat modeling for activist groups. This is not your average threat model. Activist groups deal with real-world problems beyond people getting into our web apps. Threat modeling beyond a web application on the internet opens up a whole new world, what Dr. Lodenthal calls intersectional threat modeling.
1: Early in this, I developed a term, intersectional threat modeling. The idea that technical threats, threats in a software architecture, cryptographic theme, key exchange, et cetera, et cetera, represents a very important portion of a much larger network if we're thinking of some sort of prototypical activist organization, sure, they may have vulnerabilities in the way they deliver information, the way they store information. But when we're looking at an intersectional perspective, we have to take into account that a lot of those threats come from other areas. For example, a really simple one would be something like legal threats, threat of arrest or lawsuit, or things like social threats, malicious insiders, people pretending to be things that they are not, what is often called infiltration. It became apparent early on that when I was walking groups through this, that oftentimes the biggest risks that they were unaware of were non-technical. They were social, they were legal, they were legislative, they were political, they were environmental, they were trust-based, they were economic, they were organizational, they were institutional. And helping groups to identify these and use some of the same methods that we use in threat modeling, broadly enumerating the threats ranking those threats in terms of a basic risk matrix of impact and and likelihood, and then prioritizing. With activist organizations, they're worried about surveillance, they're worried about entrapment, they're worried about infiltration, they're worried about disruption. They're not as often worried about elevation of privilege or information leakage. Oftentimes there is quite an overlap there. I've tried to promote this two-pronged approach. One is this intersectional, in the field of conflict analysis, a nested view where each system is nested within a larger subsystem, both this intersectional nested version of conflict and also the notion of harm reduction, the notion that this is a pretty dangerous world and we're likely not going to be able to fix everything. The idea is to reduce both the attack surface and the likely areas in which insecurities exist. That's the two-pronged strategy I use, mapping the intersectional nature of the insecurities and attempting to reduce that insecurity to the most usable place possible.
0: Dr. Lodenthal introduced me to the idea of a harm reduction framework. A harm reduction framework in drug use is defined as policies, programs, and practices that aim to minimize the negative health, social, and legal impacts of drug use, drug policies, and drug laws. If we extend this out more generically, we could say that a harm reduction framework is various practices that aim to minimize negative impacts.
1: The harm reduction framework is common in public health and other things, but trying to apply a harm reduction framework to threat modeling has been one of the main approaches I've taken. Look at a public health model. There's harm reduction models for all sorts of different things. A common example is intravenous drug use. For people who decide to use intravenous drugs and and do not want to eliminate that, There's things that people can use to reduce the harm, whether it's cleaning needles or using safe testing sites or or whatever. The more common example that's probably easier for people to remember is things like driving a car. Driving a car is dangerous. It goes fast, it's made of metal, it's full of gasoline, it, it can explode. So we do all these things to reduce the potentiality for damage. We wear a seatbelt, we make sure the car is maintained, we drive sober, we drive at a reasonable speed, etc. We fully acknowledge that this thing is dangerous, this thing has risks, that this thing could kill us, but we want to, again, reduce the attack surface as much as possible so that we're able to focus on prioritizing our own security. There are some things I take from this public health model, but largely what I'm trying to do is develop very context-specific solutions to highly contextual problems.
0: Threat modeling should extend beyond the technical. There are many other classes of threats to consider at the system level. The area of the law and legal risk is one such area.
1: I had a client uh, about six months ago who was not exactly a cloud storage provider, but that's basically a simple way of describing them we looked at how the different parts of their web infrastructure integrate, but we also looked at political and legal risks. We need to make sure that they are not opening themselves up to lawsuit. One of the areas I work in is um, looking at terrorist content online. How does a cloud storage company prevent themselves from being a bucket where everyone stores terrorist propaganda? That's both a political, legal, and technical threat. There's technical answers to that through hash sharing, but there's political, legal, ethical, and social answers to that as well. That's what I try to walk them through. There's not a lot of good models to say, hey, let's do that and export it, but there's bits and pieces that you can take. And the public health model is a good example of where you can get a lot of good harm reduction theory and practice.
0: I've been involved in the world of technical security for 25 years, but I don't feel like I'm qualified to speak about the legal side of the business. Dr. Lodenthal highlights the need to work with a qualified team of experts that make you better.
1: I'm not alone in a room doing this. I'm working with advisors who I trust, people who I think have different subject matter expertise, and the client themselves. We're a cloud storage company, and we're trying to prevent ourselves from, again being the next Dropbox for Islamic State videos or or neo-Nazi propaganda. The way in which we do that needs to draw on different people's expertise. In that specific example, I have a very good knowledge in the history of material supportive terrorism cases. We, We track them through a research center that I manage. But I may not be as familiar with the history of the technical threats against them. I think this is brought up in the Threat Modeling Manifesto, the idea that this needs to be a team effort. Without people saying, this is all mine, we build from a network cooperative perspective because everyone has different levels of expertise. In the same example, the legal, the legislative, the political, the trust-based for areas in which I'm very well versed because of my formal academic training. But the specific ways in which this cloud company may manage something behind the scenes, like how they integrate TLS with other systems, may be above my understanding. What I think is important here is that people are cooperative and people can work with other folks who may know areas better. When I'm doing this, I'm routinely consulting with lawyers or I'm routinely consulting with legislative or legal aides or people who specialize in this or that. I've spoken a lot to physical security specialists when we've talked about these things. Part of it is networking amongst people, the human side of cooperative work, knowing who to ask and making sure that we're getting the best
0: folks at the table. Tools, in my mind, are crucial to effective threat modeling. Dr. Lodenthal uses mind maps as a tool. Mind maps are not specific to threat modeling, but are another tool that can be repurposed to assist with threat modeling success.
1: What I'll often do is I'll sit down with a client and I'll do these broad, sprawling mind maps, which can take days. It's a big brainstorm. And once we list all the big, small, and existential threats that could possibly do, what I do is I group them categorically. I rank them hierarchically on a tree. You can picture a mind map with your company in the center. You may have four first tier branches, but you may have 32 second tier branches and 64 third and fourth tier branches. We build those out, group them so that there is some taxonomy so that like threats are near each other. And then we can work to mitigate. If you think of this first tier, second tier, third tier model, we may be able to mitigate an entire branch with one solution. And in other senses, we may need to go twig by twig by twig again, let's say we're a cloud storage company, we run a data farm, a data storage site somewhere, one of those branches might be natural disaster. Your formal threat modeling is not going to matter if the building gets washed away by a tsunami. One of those branches might be natural disasters. One of those branches might be workplace accidents. But things like that can be eliminated from our assessment if we can say either A, we have a good storage plan that the people who do this have integrated physical protections to this, or B, that this is something that we're just going to live with an acceptable risk. A part of threat modeling is not only ranking these things, but is saying some of these things are beyond our control, or some of these things are someone else's problem. And if there's someone else's problem, let's dig down deeper and figure out how we can work with that.
0: Data flow diagrams and mind mapping tools are in the tool belt, but other tools can extend into your threat modeling toolbox that Dr. Lodenthal introduces.
1: Things like cost-benefit analysis, things like SWOT analysis, things like the 4Ws. So We work them through often qualitative, brainstorming-themed activities, which are attempts to move beyond our thinking into more of a group understanding. If I were to say, what are the four or five things I'm doing, we've named a number of them. But there's also a number that I've developed afterwards that I use a lot. SWOT analysis, risk matrices. Bruce Schneier has the interesting idea of security products review he talks about, which I often do, which is, again, taking a large system, breaking it down to its products, protocols, and methods, and then doing what amounts to a product review or, in my field, a literature review on each one of those individuals the smartest people in the field say about this protocol or this encryption scheme versus this one. I'll often do the kind of security products review and go product by product for all the different parts that make it up. I'll often then do what I would call a user-driven archetypal matrix, where we try to determine what different kinds of people use your system and what are their individual needs and what sort of risks they have. We use a user-driven archetypal matrix which looks like a risk matrix that you're used to, but each of the columns is based on a different user type because different user types have different risks and risk tolerances. I'll often do that and I'll give them a whole series of different matrices based on the different types of users they can expect to experience, that they can expect to have. Borrowing from the Structured Analytic Technique Handbook is essential for me. And I've really learned the weaving about both the use of Structured Analytic Techniques in formal red teaming, as well as the use of Structured Analytic Techniques in intelligence analysis. There's a good collection, which I believe is called Structured Analytic Techniques. I think it was published by the U.S. Army or the U.S. Marine Corps. It's a great book that walks you through how to break big decisions down into small parts and how to go past, again, issues of cognitive bias or groupthink or things like that. The book is called The Red Team Handbook. And it's developed by the Army. And even though it's called the Red Team Handbook, it is just a textbook of structured analytic techniques. The other really good book is called Structured Analytic Techniques.
0: All of this brings us to this moment. From a high-level perspective, how is threat modeling applied to an individual holding public office? The people that
1: I've done that for, speaking in general terms, oftentimes have security assigned to them. And they don't trust that security for a number of complicated reasons. Two different examples. One is a federal official with an African nation. He's an executive member of an African government. And the other person I'm thinking of is an elected member of the United States House of Representatives. Both of them have security. The House rep has security from the U.S. Secret Service and the leader has security from their executive security team. Neither one of them, for various reasons, trusted that. Or rather, just like in healthcare, wanted a second opinion. The risks there are multiple. I'm certainly not going to claim to be able to do a better physical security assessment than the United States Secret Service. That would be an absurd statement. But what I can do is have a broader perspective. I can look beyond the purview of my own job. In these situations, what are they concerned about? Yes, they're concerned about information disclosure. They want to make sure that the devices they're using are secure. I don't want to downplay the digital part of this. Oftentimes, when we get to the mitigation stage, the first thing I'm walking people through is what we would call basic digital self-defense, cybersecurity, and cyber hygiene. That's a huge part of what I'm doing. Now, I don't want to say it's easier, but it's in a sense easier to fix some of those things than it is to bomb-proof your home or develop things to prevent car ramming attacks to a building. Oftentimes, I'm walking people through of how you take pre-existing technologies, off-the-shelf technologies, and string them together into a secure workflow. If we're talking about an elected official, how they can combine, let's say, a zero knowledge cloud solution with an end to end encrypted messaging platform, how they can combine sync with signal to maintain information security amongst their team, because they don't want to use whatever system is set up for them. Oftentimes, I'm using off the shelf technologies, and I'm teaching people how to string them together correctly. We're talking about end to end messaging platforms. I like Signal, wire, and key base. We do a lot of work with the three of those technologies combined with zero-knowledge cloud solutions, combined with virtual private networks, combined with virtual machines, combined with methods of identity separation and segmentation, creating different barriers to work-life balance or different parts of your job. Maybe the major concern for elected officials is how do they keep a semblance of a private life, which they often can't, and maintain public effectiveness? How do they silo and segment off, whether it's pictures of their kids or their own writing from public sphere work? Oftentimes it's figuring out where are those potential vulnerabilities and how do we mitigate against them? A common request I get, especially from people who are high profile or public, is what can I do to prevent doxing? Or what can I do to prevent unintentional information disclosure about myself or my family? That's a major concern. Working with people about that, how does that integrate to the way in which they do their job, their actual employment job? How does the way through which they do their employment affect their family? What concerns a United States House of Representative person is going to be different than what concerns someone in another country in another <laughs> socio-political context with less or at least different resources.
0: Threat modeling is more than analyzing a system-level feature and considering technical challenges against it. The threat model opens the analysis of any representation, whether it's a technology feature or the lifestyle of a prominent politician. Threat modeling makes both better and more secure, but analyzing the life of a politician makes for a far better movie plot than a data flow diagram of a feature.